Well, my name is Steve Wilhelm. I, I'm uh, subbing tonight for Tim Guile, and um, I normally lead Eastside Insight Meditation. There were a few people who were new here, and uh, I wanted to put a little context around what I'm going to talk about tonight. Um, uh, Tori Sala and Tim Guile, the two uh, guiding co-teachers, they map out a kind of arc of teachings for the year. And so this year we're doing four sets of threes, lists of threes. And, uh, and so this is a section on the three poisons, which puts me in the very odd situation of talking about hatred for the uh, first talk in August. So I, I volunteered, Tim asked for a sub and I volunteered without realizing what I was getting myself into, but it's okay. Let's see where we go here, because there's a lot to learn. And uh, we're not going to learn how to do hatred. I just say that up front. So what's the uh, second of what's called the three poisons? Greed, hatred, and delusion. And it's a difficult topic. You know, it's difficult because it's essentially the opposite of what the Buddha taught. He taught how not to do that. But in order to know how not to do that and in order to know how to work with it when it arises, it's worth looking into it. And I'm kind of surprised anyone's here at all, actually, if they looked. I don't know if that was listed hatred tonight. Plus, it's the middle of August, so you folks are amazing. Uh, I bow to you all for showing up and wanting to, uh, wanting to join in here. But there's a lot to be learned. You know, from what not to do about hatred, from the roots of where it comes from, from the meaning of what it is, and for how we work with it when it arises. And I'm going to do a little brief dip into the waters of Buddhist cosmology here. And I probably should have brought something with me. I'm not used to this hardware. I would have popped it up on the screen. I, I lead Eastside Insights, so... I'm used to that technology, so I could have popped it up, but I don't have that here. It's okay. Buddhist text cosmology can be helpful to get a sense of how important this subject is. Now, how many people who have, let me stick hands up, are aware of the kind of the big wheel of samsara that you often see in the Tibetan world? Some. Okay. So it's specially visualized in Tibetan tradition, but it kind of illustrates the way in which we are stuck, trapped in samsara. And it's basically this great being Mara, or no, it's not Mara anyway, a great being holding this wheel. And there's the six realms, the six realms that we are reborn in, according to this, 12 links of dependent origination around that that drive the whole stream of causality. And in the center of it are what's called the three poisons. And that drives the whole thing. So the center of that is what keeps us stuck. It's what... Our practice is about understanding and undoing. And it's often these three poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion, are symbolized respectively by a bird, a snake, and a pig. If I can raise this thing up a little bit. Bear with me. Seems like it ought to go up, right? I'm a taller person, it seems. Okay. 
bird, a snake, and a pig. But of the three, only the snake, which represents hatred, is actually dangerous. The others aren't dangerous inherently. And because it can strike at, at us if disturbed. So the snake, hatred, is the dangerous one. And if we understand hatred as a state of mind and heart, it becomes clear we want to avoid hatred in us as much as we can because it's a poison that damages us as much as it damages others. It's just not, it's so not helpful. And it keeps us trapped in the cycle of samsara. And then in a larger sense, nothing good arises from hatred. There's no benefit to the world. But you know how things are these days. Lots of divisions and separations. Sometimes it seems like there's too much hatred around. <clears throat> the Buddha, I, I tend to quote a lot when I'm teaching, so I'll be doing that. The Buddha made this clear in the Dhammapada when he said, hatred never ends through hatred. By love alone does it end. This is an ancient truth. So it's love that ends hatred. But boy, is that hard sometimes, right? And we think there's a reason why hatred makes sense. So what causes hatred? What is it? What do we do about it? And this gets down to the kind of the bedrock of Buddhist understanding to the very core of who we think we are, to our sense of self. Because hatred, it doesn't arise spontaneously in people. There's always a backstory, you know, something that caused that to come up for somebody. And for that reason, and by the way, I want to say part of the boundary I want to maintain here is, and I always do, I don't, I never talk about current political figures by name. And if we have a discussion, let's try to do that too. Sometimes I refer to historical figures, but it's a real boundary to maintain because we don't know where we're all at, but we're all out here in terms of wanting to cultivate love. Okay. So often people who seem the most hateful in terms of what they manifest, they actually see themselves as victims. They portray themselves as victims and they say they're fighting for survival against life-threatening odds or enemies. That's worth taking in. Like, where'd that come from? You know, that's real for those people. Often, it really is on some level. The Dalai Lama says, if we examine how anger or hateful thoughts arise in us, we will find that, generally speaking, they arise when we feel hurt, when we feel that we have been unfairly treated by someone against our expectations. If in that instant we examine carefully the way anger arises, there is a sense that it comes as a protector, comes as a friend that will help our battle or in taking revenge against the person who has inflicted harm on us. So the anger or hateful thought that arises appears to come as a shield or a protector. But in reality, that is an illusion. It is a very delusory state of mind. So does that make sense? Sometimes hatred seems like that's what's going to help you, but actually just the opposite. It harms you. It harms us. It harms whoever we're around. So why is it a delusory state of mind, hatred? This is because hatred is based on a core, a core false premise that there's an inherently existing self that has been wronged and that there's an inherently existing other who did the wronging. It's right in there that people get so intense. 
and I understand this idea of not self is hard for some folks, lack of inherent existence. But think, when you think of someone who manifests hatred, think of how fiercely they adhere to their sense of self. It's hand in hand. It's all about me, the people who express hatred. And it's all so often about other, those whom they feel justified in hating. So there's a very uh, strong sense of concretization of self is just built in there. And often in our, you know, in our beleaguered world, hatred arises most powerfully around ideas of racial bigotry. That there's some distinct difference in terms of race. And we can see how this creates a sense of some other that is somehow bad or lesser, somehow justifies the virulence of those who are hating. And it gets way down on the bones of people and they just can't see their way through it. But it's caused no end of harm, as you all know. Joseph Goldstein says, Joseph, what great Western teacher? He says, hatred is a mental factor that has the nature of condemning the object of having aversion. Aversion, ill will, annoyance, irritation, anger, all of these are expressions of the mental factor of hatred. And for those of you who have studied the four foundations of mindfulness, you know, take a look at what happens. How many people have studied the four foundations? Just a few, okay, some. That's where the Buddha taught how to do this mindfulness practice. And incredibly brief, he basically laid out four areas to be mindful of. That's body, everything we experience in our body. The second is called vagueness, so whether or not things seem pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Our state of mind, kind of the overlying colors of our mind, the quality is like the rose or dark color of glasses we have. And then fourthly, something called dhammas, sometimes translated as mind objects. But in terms of the first three, which are kind of the most viscerally accessible. So think about a person in a state of hatred. And in terms of their body, they're not being mindful of their body. I mean, hatred is really visceral. People feel it in their bodies. And when they're in the middle of that, they're identified with it. They're swept up in it. They're not being mindful of it. Guarantee it. They were. They go, wait a minute. What's going on here? They are almost enjoying the intensity of what they're feeling. And then vagueness, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, to be aware of when that arises. Someone who's in hatred is just swept up in that, and usually they're stuck on unpleasant. They're seeing the other as unpleasant. Therefore, they hate him. And it becomes this fierce identity. It's just an obsession. It's pretty amazing how strong it is. And then the third is mind tones. You know, we often walk around with colorations of our mind that we don't know is part of us. That's part of the brilliance of what the Buddha taught to help us be aware of that. But people that are in hatred, in a state of hatred, there are some dark tongues, and they're in the middle of it. They think that's them. That's the whole problem in all these cases. They think it's them, themselves. So this hatred is, by definition, kind of this heated and turbulent state, heated and turbulent. And it's the opposite of nibbana, which has a connotation of cooling. Nibbana means cooling. Nibbana means awakening. So awakening is synonymous with cooling and all of this other stuff is heated and turbulent. Joseph Goldstein says, ill will, aversion, 
are like boiling water. Water that is boiling is very turbulent. You can't see through to the bottom. This kind of turbulence in the mind, the violent reaction of hatred and aversion is a great obstacle to understanding. So that's part of why we don't want to do that, even in subtle ways, because it gets in the way of clear seeing. And the Buddha, in his eminently practical way, is pointing us away from that. Because if we're on a path of awakening, hatred takes us in the wrong direction. So let's pause for a minute and look within yourselves and consider a moment when you felt hatred, when you felt this broad sense of dislike about some category of persons, some political leaders, whatever it is, something kind of an ongoing, or maybe it was a bully that you knew when you were 12 who somehow made your life really tough. Or maybe it is a political figure you think is damaging people. But think what goes on inside of us. Feel how much we concretize that person. And we make them or her into something solid, which is despicable or wrong or dark. We just make them into a thing. It's pretty illuminating, isn't it? Could you envision that person as a sweet young toddler? three years old, playing happily. Would you? Could you envision that person as someone who cares for his or her mother, who takes care of his or her mother in a kind way, even though we're so convinced this person is somehow inherently wrong? It's a stretch. So this is an area where it's worthwhile to try to discern between anger and hatred. They're really different in terms of how we navigate our Dharma life. Hatred is like a deep set, steady condition of heart and mind that just radiates ill will and enmity towards a being or beings. It's kind of locked in. And in such a case, there's really nothing those beings that are the objects of hatred can do to alleviate the hatred coming at them in terms of you know, racial divisions. If someone is bigoted towards a certain race, racist towards a certain race, there's basically nothing the people on the receiving end can do about that. It's just unfair, it's wrong. And the person with the hatred has this idea. It's a deeply held mind state of the hater rather than anything the hated can do to change it, any of that. Anger, on the other hand, is far more it's circum, it's circumstantial, has to do with circumstance, it's episodic, it's part of our lives as human beings. We do experience anger, and it's not, you know, it is what it is. It's not necessarily bad. Often it arises quickly and fades quickly. Often, often it happens most intensely between two people who love each other the most, just because. They're so open to each other. It just happens, right? I've been married 32 years, and I'm well aware that navigating anger is a big part of the deal. It's a core part of the deal. And sometimes when Ellen and I kind of stumble into some tension or trip a hot button or, you know, you know how it is, it's pretty funny to see the dog and the cat. They both together slink off to the other corner of the house. It's like they go, oh, 
we suddenly it doesn't become a joke. Like, oh, we must be having a problem. He just left, you know. <laughs> they don't want to be around. But in terms of Ellen and I, we have no choice but to show up. You know, we got to show up with that. Acknowledge what we're feeling. Acknowledge in terms of the places of mindfulness. See where it's arising. Say what we got to say and work through it. But anger is okay. If we are mindful as it arises, it doesn't turn into hate. Sometimes when couples don't do that well, then they can start to take each other down. You know, that's when, if it really turns into this concretized sense of lack of respect, that that can, that can take a couple out. So this distinction, it's important because we're talking about not doing hatred, but I bet anger, has any, everybody here has gotten angry? Any hands? Any anger ever? Well, there you go. Anger happens, right? So when we can, as you probably all know, when we can cultivate mindfulness during a moment of anger, internally and externally, mindfulness, what's going on inside of ourselves and what's going on inside of the other person, then we can navigate. We can understand where it comes from. It does not become hatred then. That's the big deal. And this mindfulness body of Vedanas of mind states, those three in particular, they're really, really, really worth investigating in terms of how you navigate that. It's so important because it makes the big difference between not tipping over into hatred. And then second, in terms of anger, there can be times when an expression of anger is compassion. It can be the compassionate thing to do. For those of you who are parents, you may have been in a situation where you had to express yourself vigorously to an offspring to set boundaries, to tell them what was wrong. They didn't like it, but you had to sound a little harsh to get it across maybe, you know? And that's okay as long as, and it might've been tinged with some anger, but as long as you really see what's going on inside. In Tibetan tradition, there's lots of, uh, Wrathful deities, as some of you may know, Mahakala. And I learned a lot from that because these are beings, they look really fierce and they're acting from compassion. So there's a way in which anger can be that. But we need to pay attention. We need to pay attention. Those beings are embodying love, even though it sounds harsh. And that is night and day from hatred, which is not expressing love. So the Buddha is very clear, there's no place for hatred. And this isn't out of some kind of piety or moral judgment, but because that's not what he teaches, but just because hatred is a poison, three poisons, right? That will infect our minds, our hearts, in the immediate sense, and it will infect our karmic mind stream over lifetimes. So if we ever, you know, settle into hatred, we're playing with fire, depending on what you think about rebirth, but even hypothetically, if it might be true, it's playing with fire. And he set a high bar for this. There's a famous sutta called the simile of the saw that always amazes me, talking to monks about this very thing about what to do if someone is being completely unkind to you. The Buddha says, mendicants, even if bandits were to sever you savagely limb by limb, with a two-handled saw, one who gave rise to a mind of hate toward them would not 
be carrying out my teaching. Here in Bhikkhus, you should train thus. Our minds will remain unaffected and we shall utter no evil words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness without inner hate. We shall abide pervading them with a mind imbued with loving kindness and starting with them, we shall abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. That is how you should train mendicants. So there you are, lying on the ground, being sawn up, and you're radiating loving kindness toward all beings. That's a that's a high bar. It just seems too ridiculously impossible. But consider the 14th Dalai Lama, who in his lifetime saw Tibet invaded by the Chinese government. More than a million Tibetans were killed. Most of the monasteries were destroyed. He's a refugee from his own country and centuries of Tibetan Buddhist culture are being undermined. That's pretty rough stuff. If he was feeling kind of grumpy about that, it'd probably be excused. And he's, and this is where it's important. He is outspoken about these actions of the Chinese government in terms of their wrongness. But he's never anything but loving and compassionate toward the Chinese people and the leaders. He never crosses that line into hatred. I've been to teachings in Dharamsala, and in these situations, they have the Chinese monastics set up on the front, right in front of the Dalai Lama. It's simultaneously translated in the Mandarin. There's great devotion and respect towards the Chinese monastics. No sense that there's something wrong with them because of what their government has done. It's amazing. So that high bar is manifesting right here in 2023. Dalai Lama says, in terms of the way we have been dealing with the Chinese government, we have always tried to avoid negative emotions. We consciously make it a point not to let our emotions overwhelm us. So even if there is a likelihood of some feeling of anger arising, we deliberately check ourselves and try to reduce that and try to deliberately develop a feeling of compassion toward the Chinese. And in particular, he expresses compassion for the consequences of the actions that have been done to his people, future lifetimes of some of those leaders, what situations of the end. So the bar is high in this arena for all of us, but that's the nature of the inner journey. You know, it's like, it's like uh, just about all you can handle. That's kind of how it works. You know, the more you grow, you push the boundary out and you encounter just about all you can handle, but you can, but it feels like, oh my God, really? But you can. And that's why this is so amazing because our tendency towards hatred is tied to our deeply embedded mistaken identity of self and other. So in the very process of working through this, we peel that back. And it's primarily difficult just because on some level, we're so conditioned to fiercely defend ourselves. But it's just in there that we see through it, just in what we encounter in our lives here in 2023. So, in fact, there's a way in which the very moments of difficulty with others 
which might be political others, those very moments that might cause us to hate others are in fact opportunities on the path. It's really easy to be kind toward others when they don't threaten you. Adolf Hitler was very kind to his secretary. It's a great movie about Hitler's secretary. He's very kind to her. But the real stretch is to go beyond hatred when we feel threatened. That's when we grow. And that's when we're kind of wrenched out of our sense of intrinsic identity. The Power of the Stretch has a wonderful, wonderful book, The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, written in the 8th century by Shantideva. It's a study particularly in Tibetan tradition, not so much in Theravada. But in the chapter on patience, which I highly recommend, Shanti Davis says, and the, the, listen to the language, it's a little unusual, so I'll unpack it if it's hard to understand. He's saying, beggars in this world are numerous. Assailants are comparatively few. For if I do no harm to others, others do no harm to me. That's kind of the saying, most situations not so difficult. So like a treasure found at home that I have gained without fatigue, my enemies are helpers in my bodhisattva work. He's celebrating finding those who are enemies because that's where he grows. My enemies are helpers in my bodhisattva work and therefore they should be a joy to me. And he has this, he kind of like in the text, he's almost like talking to himself. This is really interesting dialogues. So he's talking to himself and saying, these enemies conspired to harm me, I protest, and therefore they should receive no honors. But then the reply is, but had they worked to help me like a doctor, how could I have brought forth patience? The enemies are teaching patience. And then he says, thanks to those whose minds are full of malice, I engender patience in myself. They therefore are the causes of my patience, fit for veneration like the Dharma. So those very enemies, he's saying, are fit for veneration because that's how he learns patience, by not hating them. So we don't want hatred inside of us. That's pretty clear, right? It's like, doesn't get us anywhere. As Buddhaghosa, who's a great fifth century Indian pundit, wrote in the Pasudimaga, holding hatred in our hearts is like holding a hot coal in our hands. It burns only us, right? There's versions of that in 12-step work in different places. The same idea, you know, holding hatred in our hearts is like a hot coal in our hands. It burns only us. Hatred darkens our minds and hearts. It keeps us from the natural unfolding of the heart, the natural opening of the spiritual path the lifting of obscurations, that is our birthright. That's why we're on the path itself. It sets us back. Joseph Goldstein says, clouds of greed, hatred, and delusion obscure the natural radiance of love and compassion in our minds. As we clear away these clouds through the unfolding of insight, the qualities of loving kindness begin to shine forth naturally. But, you know, this leap of insight indicated by Shantideva isn't so easy. So I'm going to finish here and then we'll have time for discussion. There's a great sutta, the, I always have trouble pronouncing these, the Agatha Vinaya, 
Yagata Vinaya Sutta. And for those of you who, so it's in the numerical sutta. Anybody know what the numerical suttas are? So basically there's four, four Nikayas, sets of suttas. And numerical suttas is really odd one where it's structured in terms of how many items there are in a particular sutta. So this is the book of fives, which means all of the suttas in the book of fives have five things in them. Isn't that cool? So this is the book of fives. So the citation would be A.N. Angura Nikaya 5, colon 161. So this is the 161st of the suttas with five things. And in it, the Buddha says, there are five ways of subduing hatred by which when hatred arises in a person, that person can wipe it out completely. Which five? So I'm just going to walk you through these five because they are pretty cool and I think really useful. The first, when one gives birth to hatred, I'm just going to read and then I'll explain a little bit. First, when one gives birth to hatred for an individual, one should develop goodwill for that individual. Thus, the hatred for that individual should be subdued. And as many of you know, this is essentially the last step of loving, uh, loving kindness practice, the way we do it in this tradition. You know, you start off with yourself and a mentor and a neutral person and end up with a difficult person. So he's talking about cultivating loving kindness toward a difficult person. And whether, you know, in this tradition, kind of IMS Western tradition, tend to use phrases to do that, then it's not necessary. You could just cultivate it, whatever works for you. But to go from what's easy, your friend, your mom, whatever, you know, your benefactor, to what's hard, someone who is really difficult for you, that's powerful. And it goes through the sequentiality because it kind of, it's pretty hard to make the jump, right? Start off with a difficult person to kind of go sequentially. But it's, 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 it's very powerful. So that's the first one. We already do that in this tradition. The second, Buddha says, when one gives birth to hatred for an individual, one should develop compassion for that individual. Thus, the hatred for that individual should be subdued. It's interesting, he says, when one gives birth to hatred, you know, it talks about the impermanence of that, the emerging out of nowhere, kind of implied in there. There's a lot of motion there. But compassion is different from loving kindness because by its very nature, compassion embraces the suffering or the dukkha of the person we're prone to hate. And it brings us into a sense of connection with them because they're suffering. How can we be hating this being who is suffering? Suffering because of their attachment, perhaps, to the very qualities or actions that make us want to hate them. But they're suffering or they wouldn't even do that stuff. So we developed we develop inherently compassion for those who seem to be enemies by developing insight about what's going on in the world, about what may have led them to do that, about what must be out of whack in their hearts and minds that they would want to be hateful to others, harmful to others. It wouldn't make us even want to hate them. So compassion kind of cracks open that sense of self and others. It's a place where we can meet. Third one. When one gives birth to hatred for an individual, one should develop equanimity toward that individual. Thus, the hatred for that individual should be subdued. 
So as many of you know, equanimity is the fourth and most refined of the four Ramaviharas, the divine abodes. And equanimity is kind of a place where kindness intersects emptiness, has a real sense of the letting go, the freedom of emptiness is kind of embedded in there. We, we have a balanced response to what comes at us because we know inherently there's nothing really inherent there to get stuck on. And it's equanimity is this very powerful kind of slicing through the difficulties. Thing. When we regard difficulty or a hateful person with equanimity, it's kind of like these twin blades of attraction and revulsion kind of dissolve away because those are positive in the sense of there being a concrete nasty person out there as being hateful and us, and it kind of falls away, it cuts through it. So that's how that one works. Now the fourth is really interesting. He says, when one gives birth to hatred for an individual, one should pay that person no mind and pay that person no attention. Thus, the hatred for that individual should be subdued. I kind of love that one because it's so like, walk away, dude. You know, it's like, uh, they're the place just to back off. Just leave it, just leave them alone, you know, for obsessing about someone's hateableness. Just go the other way. And it doesn't mean, as a tricky one, maybe it doesn't mean turn our back on them and go away. It might mean bow and back away so that we're respecting them even while we're leaving. But there's a real place to just not engage. Just let it go. And I, I think it's that's just like so, you know, like chill. I think it's so human here that the Buddha included that. And then the fifth is very interesting. The last, he says, when one gives birth to hatred for an individual, one should direct one's thoughts to the fact of that person being the product of that person's actions. We think this venerable one is the doer of his actions, heir to his actions, born of his actions, related by his action, and has his actions as his arbitrator. Whatever action that person does for good or for evil to that will he fall heir. Thus the hatred for that individual should be subdued. So in a very literal sense, here he's talking about karma and rebirth. You know, I don't know where you all are on karma and rebirth, but karma, just the karma part, you know, the way someone acts, you can see how they generate their end. I mean, look at how dictators end. You ever notice that? They pretty much end up dead or in jail. Pretty much. They don't. It just never works out. Anyone who's a dictator at this point is scared of that happening to them. So even in that, this lifetime, they're heir to their actions. Not to mention, just think if there were multiple lifetimes and someone had oppressed many, many, many people over their lifetime, how gnarly that would be in their next lifetime. So the Buddha is saying to have compassion, to recognize what a mess they got themselves into. And it's a way to not have hatred toward them. Because it's like, oh, man, I'm sorry. What you just did. And then also, the other thing that this gets at is, where is this individual that we might hate? Is there an inherent being there anywhere? Or are they actually a composite made up of the five skandhas and interwoven with the winds of karma. That's kind of all that's there. There isn't any inherent person there anyway to hate. 
And when we start to look into the causes and effects, it starts to just take apart this sense of some inherent person that we might hate. Really powerful. We might look at such a being wanting to throw brickbats. I love that word, brickbats. <laughs> but if we look at it with clarity, there's just this being being blown along by the winds of karma they're creating. There's no there there. So this kind of shows how compassion and not self come together. Because just the very difficulty of the situation, a person we're aching to hate makes us dig deeper. You know, we could hate them with all the repercussions upon ourselves, or we can kind of break through, have insight and realize there's nobody home. Ultimately, there's a mess. There is a mess of erroneous actions and ill will that someone is manifesting. But ultimately, there's nobody home. And it takes it apart. So there's nothing to fear. There's nobody to hate. And this shows how insight on the path is the ultimate transformational agent and how it brings compassion. They come together. We see lack of inherent self. That brings compassion. So seeing clearly how this person we thought of as enemy who we are inclined to hate, we can break through to compassion and love. Let's just sit for a minute. Okay. So, yeah, so I was just, so in I just want to say on the east side, once in a while we do the ground rules, which somehow it seems like a good idea here, which are basically uh, speak from your own experience if you have questions. Try not to cross-talk, give each other advice. Um, and, you know, if we could, because I know this can look some tricky territory, please just refrain from naming political figures, if you would, in anything you have to say, if that works for you. Okay, so. I hope we can have peace between the east side and the west side here. Uh, I'm Nathaniel. Nathaniel. Um, I'm struggling with some of this. And I'm going to just try to keep it really simple, but I'm picturing this image of someone throwing hot coals at someone and I'm there and I could defend them or support in some way. Maybe it's a kid. Maybe it's someone who's been oppressed by society. I love the idea of love rather than hate. And I think I would actually probably act better in that case. If I was just thinking of myself as a peaceful warrior shielding, not catching these hot coals and standing there mad at that person chances are I would end up getting hurt more. Um, but maybe you, I wonder if you could speak to that the ultimate dilemma in this stuff of like, how do you actually change society? I, I'm not willing to just be like, well, they'll, they'll learn next life. Right. Cause huh. then where do we end up? So I agree not to stand there holding the coal and being right. angry or hatred. Um, but maybe you can speak a little more to that, like yeah, you're right. supporting others. Yep, yep. No, I didn't touch on that too much. And uh, action is good to take. I mean, I've been, I've demonstrated, I've been in jail, I've done all kinds of stuff. Um, but what we hold in our hearts while we do it, that's the important part. And if you think of, if you think of, especially in the 20th century, people that made an enormous difference, they actually. You know, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Dalai Lama, they all did not enemize the other. 
to an astonishing degree, which was exactly why they were so effective. And they did lead change. And we can. Absolutely, we need to. Climate change, you know, whatever. We got it. But we can do it without hating other. That's the, the key. And I, you know, I was around a lot of super radical stuff back in the 60s, and it's it fell into hating others and demonizing, and it just, it was no good. You know, so we have to look deeply enough to realize there's no enemy, and at the same time, take action in any way we're moved to, but without hating. Thank you. Yeah, one visual I like to think about it with certain political leaders we might be thinking of right now is they're stuck at like 15, 16 from whatever the traumas and abuses they've been through. And it's like, well, okay, boundaries. Yeah, <laughs> We right. need boundaries around that, but exactly, right. but not just yelling at them. Yeah, so this isn't about rolling over, you know, and if some people are moved to be activists and some people aren't, I get that, you know, but for whoever is, do it, but just keep watching what's going on. You use that as your edge of practice. Don't flip into demonizing because we got to lead, you know, we have to lead and we can't do that if we fall into that negativity. I'm Anne. Um, I just want you to say more about non-self and hatred. I'm just, I kind of get it, but I just want to hear more about it. To say more about what your questions. Um, well, you just kind of touched on it. And so I just want you to expand on it. I think what I was trying to get at is that when people are in a state of hatred, they're also in a state of complete concretization of the being that they hate. They think something's wrong with them, less about them, hateable about them. They concretize it. And not-self takes that apart. There's nobody there to hate. And the more we in our insight practice start to see that, the more we won't be able to hate others because we'll see through it. We will realize there's just nobody, there's no one, there's no, it just doesn't make any sense. There's no one there to hate. It, 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 but when you look at someone who's in a state of hating, you can see this really like you see with racism is really concretized how much they think those others are somehow, you know, lesser or a problem or something in some blanket concrete kind of way that they don't even think they're people. You know, the way people were around Native Americans in the early history of this country, which was just appalling, was like that. And certainly around black people in this country, which is appalling, was like that. So, yeah, does that make sense? A little bit. Yeah, a little I'll just, bit. I'll just keep. So yeah, keep working on it. But, but, you know, when in, do you, you have a regular practice? Okay. So in your practice, did you ever notice that in your own sphere, I bet you did, stuff comes, your own little, your own particular, excuse me, not little, but your own particular universe of things arises and passes repeatedly, right? And have you ever started to kind of put it together that, oh, this me that I think that I am is actually sort of a mosaic of all these things that arise and pass when I'm sitting. Mm -hmm. This pattern that I got over and over and over and that thing over and over and over. And this, where else are you? You know, and the very things that you see, that is the mosaic that makes up your sense of self. Mm -hmm. And the more you see that, like some people suffer from hating themselves, right? Because they think, oh, I'm a wreck. But when you really start to see through it, it's like there's no self that's a wreck. So how can I hate myself? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like 
equivalent in terms of how we feel about others. Okay, sweet. Katie. Oh, sorry. Uh, first of all, thank you. I'm I'm uh, getting so much out of this, and uh, it, it just seems to be a, a very clear, very clear vision into the the all, all these complicated, interesting problems. But I wanted to ask you also about the your book you mentioned, the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. Was, did I get the name right? And how might we find that? Oh yeah, it's called a, a guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. Ah. I mean, if you go on Amazon, there's four different translations. <laughs> okay. if it is, it's very well known in Tibet. The, the Dalai Lama has taught like for a whole week, simply the chapter on patience. Okay. Yeah, so it's a big deal in Tibetan world. Yeah, so very, very findable and go for it. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Okay, let's see. How uh, about, uh, I know there was an in-person person. And yes. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, I think I'd like to understand a little bit more the relationship between anger and hatred. Um, there's an insurance company that denied my child care, um, which resulted in them being exited from a program into homelessness and on medication and um, sure. severe damage. Um, and I had to speak with them almost every day um, for months, trying to get them to see reason, <laughs> right? Um, and I felt so much anger, like lava coming out of my eyes and ears and everything and um, fury and helplessness. And um, and I, I don't know if it was directed at the people so much as it was the institution, but where... It, it, where does it become hatred and where do I stop to personalizing that? And how do I, how do I let go of the, the, the the person who is my child and see them just as a, you know, rising and falling of phenomena? Yeah. Well, I mean, they're your child. So you're going to feel in your hearts and bones for your whole life. And I'm so sorry that that's, this is, I know, it feels really vulnerable to talk about it, but no, I, the anger, I don't know where to put that. Yeah. You know, I mean, the uh, the individuals that you got on the phone, I'm sure most of them just needed a job, and that's who had hired them, you know, and there are actuarials and God knows what up to corporate ladder, you know, but it's the real problem dealing with this kind of situation whoops this is fell off it's a real uh problem here in 2023 and i massively dislocated kind of thing to know who's there's who is the person i don't know you know right and then there's a board and there's a ceo and they're all i mean it's just it's sort of invisible it's just the machinery of profit and loss going on i get that so it's almost like it's almost like i mean to feel pain and anger about what happened to your child. Is, is your child still with us? Or? Yeah. Yes, they're homeless in Seattle right now. Homeless in Seattle, yeah. I'm so sorry. Yeah. So you have, you know, every right to feel angry, but but still to be mindful to not tip that over into hatred because at who? 
you know, what, I mean, there is this company, you could, I guess, feel anger or maybe even hatred to the company, but there's no there there. I used to be a business journalist, cover aerospace, and so I'm super aware of how corporate boards work and all that stuff, and there's literally nobody home. I mean, it's this weird intersection of people in different roles and you can't find the person. So it's kind of like that too. So it's, it's almost like one of these incredibly uncomfortable things where both things are true. Conventionally speaking, your son has been treated incredibly unfairly and it's completely wrong. That's true. Conventionally speaking, that's absolutely true. And every, every, you know, ounce of pain that you feel is completely like how a mom should feel. And then ultimately, there's no there there at the same time. There's no, whatever the company is, there's no there to hate. So is that helplessness of rate that nothing to hate? Yeah. <laughs> is that hatred? I mean, that, that's what I'm trying to understand is I didn't hate the individuals I spoke to, but is that feeling, is that hatred? Is it just, helpless fury in what's the difference yeah i know i i I hear you i mean it sounds like a lot of anger is what it seems like it sounds like you brought wisdom to it and didn't think that those people were all bad conspiring to make things bad for you so it sounds like you didn't cross that line into concretizing them but it sounds like you feel a ton of fury i understand that a ton of anger and sometimes you know to be able i mean i don't know where this leads but you know sometimes to be able to see clearly in the middle of that can help find solutions you might not have thought of yet. You know, that's part of what, part of what I learned as a journalist was I'd run into all these walls and barriers and stuff and to never concretize or hate those people, but to bring them in. I kept trying to bring them in, bring them in and doors would open in like the most bizarre way sometimes just because I did that, you know, so you never know. Um, so that might be tactically one way to, to work with it. Is to try to separate those two, because the story is obviously just isn't isn't over. It's completely unfair, and I'm so sorry that it's part of what's screwy about this country. I get it. And yeah, what's your son's name? Tonight. What did they get? Tonight. Tonight. It's their name. They them. They they tonight. Okay. Well, let's dedicate the merit to tonight. Tonight. It's like t like the word tonight, like tonight. Yeah, like not today. Okay, got it. Yeah. Yeah, I want to dedicate the merit at the end of this anyway. So let's dedicate to the well-being of tonight. And we'll get we'll get back there. Thank you for your honesty. Yeah, please. Thank you so much. My name's Taffy. What is it, please? Taffy. Taffy. Yeah. Hi, Taffy. Hi. Um, I just felt so compelled. When Tanai's mother came up, um, just to to make presence in the room and to it brought out the idea of uh, suffering and the intersection of hatred and suffering. And what was the word? Suffering and hatred yep. and suffering. You know. You know, I walk in this karma body of a black woman in America and, um, you know, feeling like the one that is hated. And, you know, that all that can do is just break your heart um, and things like that. Until 
enlightenment. And then it's like what you said, it's um, just working with it. It's, it's just working with it yeah. for me. Um, but when you first <laughs> said what the topic was going to be, I'm like, oh, great. Should I just get up now and walk out? I just uh, didn't want to be a person of color with this topic. I've had, uh, I've been in Dharma talks where these, this, I'm not sure if it was actually this one, but there's another, another one about uh, taking the suffering and just being good with it or mm-hmm. something. Anyway, my buttons have gotten pushed before and so, and, I don't have that sense at all in the room with you as a teacher. Um, So I just have uh, a lot of appreciation. And I I guess a little insight that I take out of the talk tonight is um, the working with it of life, whatever it is, it's the working with it. I don't know how the Buddha would say that, but it's like, that's the dance. It's the working with it. And it's like, you know, completely unfair and wrong that you as a black woman should have to navigate life differently than we white people. I totally get that. Oh my God. And I'm, I'm, I was very aware you're there, you know, because yeah, you, 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 you know, that come at you. So <laughs> thank you for your bravery and coming up here. And then, um, yeah. Yeah, well, it really was the opening that just happened with the last question that was like, okay, yeah, there is a space for me to share here. Yeah, good. I'm so glad. Thank you. Yeah, we're on this journey together in its many forms. Is there anybody online? I can't see who's raising hands or not, or maybe you can see, or is there anybody? I'm not sure. I, I just, um, I'm Beth. Beth. That's okay. Um, I've just moved by the reports tonight and something came up for me just a minute ago, the common feeling with the reports and with the feeling of hatred is feeling alone. And um, what I enjoy about listening to the Buddha's teachings, sitting here, hearing from teacher who's been down the path longer than I have. I, I, it makes me feel less alone. It makes me feel connected. And I know the, the Buddha said we have to walk, we do have to walk this path alone, but we can walk with each other. And that's, that's, that's why I come, come here every night. So I'm very moved by, um, by the reports and by your teaching tonight. So thank you. You know, and feeling alone means being afraid, right? Yes. So I get that. It's really scary to be alone. Do you know a funny thing about the Buddha's life? That's not like a funniest thing to say. But we would think, oh, the Buddha had this sort of, you know, serene kind of life. Actually, not at all. In the Buddha's lifetime, he had two two kings who were his sponsor, Bimbisara and Pasaneda. During the Buddha's lifetimes, both of those kings were overthrown by their sons. And King Bimbisara starved to death in a prison not far from the bamboo grove. I mean, I've been there. It's like two miles away. Wow. And so he saw that happen, the same insane kind of political chaos. And then, you know, not only that, his cousin was trying to kill him constantly. It, yes. It was a family difficulty. Mm-hmm. So 
there's a way in which that's not that different from 2023 in a bizarre kind right. of way. And he yeah. held it. And, and, and he even, there's one amazing sutta where the son who had overthrown the Buddha's first patron, King Bimbisara, right. comes to the Buddha later on and says, oh, you know, I've been feeling kind of uncomfortable. And Buddha finally kind of listens and listens. And he said, well, gosh, you know, maybe I shouldn't have killed my dad. And, uh, oh, yeah. you know, kind of confesses and the Buddha pulls him forward. It's really interesting. He doesn't turn against this person. He pulls him forward in this amazing way, despite the complete horror of what wow. just happened. So in that way, I say that only because in that way, we're not alone also. I was just going to say that across time makes me feel less alone. Right. And um, during moments of of despair, I, I, I do, there is some, it's, it's refuge. I mean, taking refuge, right. It's part of the refuge right. and, um, and it does keep me, keep me walking. So I thank you and thank everybody for being here. But take refuge in love, you know, not hate, no matter how unfair it is. Watching the clock out about, so how about any, any other, uh, got somebody online. Yeah. Hi there, Ernie. Yeah, my question was, can you hate a disease? Can you hate something inanimate? Or I guess a virus isn't necessarily inanimate. To where that would cause you to have action that would be for an ultimate good. I think if you, I mean, you're, you're right. It's or, an animal. Or is that a different kind of a hate? Yeah, right. I mean, because most hatred is very personal, you know, yeah. where you're concretizing and you could sort of like anthropomorphize a virus, I guess. Exactly. And hate it. But whether or not that would help you out any is, I mean, I would question it. I, <laughs> I you know, I think you could do it, you know, do everything you can to. To, to not be afflicted by the virus or do whatever you need to do, but to bring up that coal of hatred in your heart, in one's heart, even in the context of something like a virus where there's no sentience anyway, is probably going to hurt oneself and not have anything to do with the virus. Well, you could have a, if you were in a position to try to, you know, be combative, say yeah. in a medical research sense, uh, or is it still, you should still just not try to think of it in, in like you say, anthropomorphic terms. Right. Yeah, be vigorous. Yeah, be vigorous. You know, chase down the virus, figure out how to stop it. <laughs> Don't hate it. Because it's just, yeah, I think you're just going to trip over one. I'm not saying you, but, you know, one's right. just going to trip over oneself and make a darkness that won't help. Because even in those situations, I think bringing light into the situation sometimes half of what heals people anyway they make it this kind of you know medical industrial darkness I, it, it seems like that's part of the problem we got kind of not being so out of touch with the light and balance of nature that it gets all out of whack so I think any kind of hatred that we let ourselves do just hurts us yeah but this is different from vigorous acting. You know, that's the thing we were talking about with the 
the political question right at the beginning. Different from vigorous action. Do that if you're a medical researcher, but don't hate. Don't hate. Okay. Okay. Sweet. All right. Maybe we're good. So dedicating the merit is uh, traditional in the Dharma. And what it means is to recognize the life that we have created here together. You know, there's kindness here. There's learning, leaning toward truth. There's an openness of heart in the midst of the tumult of the world. This is extraordinary. So we can dedicate the merit. We can take the energy and send it, offer it to beings in difficult places. So tonight, certainly, this lovely person tonight who is struggling, let's take this light that we have shared together and offer it to tonight, that they might find a way forward, they might see a glimmer of possibility despite pain and difficulty. And then think of people in your own lives Perhaps people who are sick, who have died, or animal friends who are sick or died, or in some struggle. And dedicate the merit of this life to those beings that they might find a moment of freedom, a possibility in the middle of pain, a respite in suffering despite difficulty. And then extending our hearts, our minds around this globe, this tiny little blue ball, hurtling through space. There's so much difficulty. People struggling in Somalia, in Yemen, in Syria, in North Korea in Western China, under oppression that's hard to imagine, certainly in Ukraine, in Central America, and not just our human friends, but our four-leggeds, and two-leggeds and swimming friends, all of these beings being hammered by so many difficulties. So dedicate this offering of light to all those beings, that a sparkle might emerge in our hearts, even in the midst of everything, that they might be kind to the person next to them, that they might find a drop of hope to move ahead in a way with love and not hatred in their hearts. Thank you very much. In a circle like this, everyone made this happen. So I'm greatly honored to for what you've all shared. Very well. May you be well.